You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech, where we pick through the rubble of the collision of technology, media, and entertainment to find a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help us make our way through this crazy time. I'm your host, David Bloom, and I deeply hope you are okay in this remarkable moment in our history with so many challenges. There's a lot to be concerned about, and I hope people get through it in one piece and with some love and care. In the middle of all that, I have been thinking a lot about the recent launch of HBO Max, the big new streaming video service from WarnerMedia and AT&T. It launched to positive reviews, but also to substantial confusion. How is it different from HBO? Do I still need HBO Go or HBO Now, or for that matter, HBO, HBO? And why isn't it on Amazon or Roku? If some of that has left you a bit puzzled, you aren't alone. Yes, it's clear that AT&T's unit has a potential blockbuster on its hands, uh, possibly a must-have for streaming video consumers, which I think will soon enough be pretty much all of us. And that's before Hulu's founder, Jason Keelar, who was recently named WarnerMedia's new head, truly settles in and hones this still imperfect product to a fine edge. That alone could realign the streaming wars. For instance, HBO's Max's debut is likely what encouraged Apple to dump its originals-only strategy for TV+, and reportedly begin buying library content from other companies. As it is, HBO Max is one of the most ambitious and expensive at $15 a month services out there, a so-called four-quadrant offering. It has something for just about everyone, from beloved TV series such as Friends and The Big Bang Theory, to film classics from Bergman and Rosalini, from the Turner and Warner vaults, uh, documentaries, and of course the exquisite HBO array of shows, including The Sopranos, Game of Thrones, and their current programs. There's even some original content, though the pandemic delayed much of it. That breadth of programming dwarfs two other big new services, TV Plus from Apple, with about 30 shows and features, and Disney Plus, which has lots of shows for young children, Disney geeks, and fans of Marvel and Star Wars, but not that much for the rest of us. Max's uh, basic pitch, it's HBO, plus a bunch of other cool stuff you'll probably like for the same price, all of it streaming on demand, will likely resonate widely. But HBO Max is also realigning the business in other ways, most particularly because of why it launched without being part of Roku and Amazon. Rich Greenfield of Lightshed Partners, one of the smartest analysts out there talking about this space, calls this the new carriage battle of 2020. By that he means it's a lot like what happened over the past few decades when pay TV providers fought with popular channels such as ESPN or CBS or Fox News over fee hikes to carry those channels on their cable services. Usually, eventually, the cable company would cave and it would show back up after protests from fans of the channel. Maybe we'll see the same thing happen with Roku and Amazon. But in the meantime, we're seeing the streaming business shift and a market opportunity emerge amid the growing consumer confusion. The Roku, Amazon, HBO, Max fight is ultimately over having your expensive collection of programming and your fancy app experience and your incredibly valuable direct relationship with consumers chopped up and disaggregated onto someone else's platform. Worse, these days, those platforms have their own competing programming services. Amazon's channels generated a reported $2.5 billion a year from 5 million Prime Video customers who get some additional programs on top of, uh, get some additional channels on top of what they're getting directly from Amazon Prime Studios itself. So they'll throw in HBO or they'll throw in Showtime or Stars or uh, a more niche channel. As Greenfield put it, it's a very good business for Amazon to be in. But Warner Media doesn't want to give up that control over what will now be its most important new product, really, in decades, arguably since HBO itself was founded as the first cable channel back in 1972. After all, Greenfield said, why bother building an HBO Max app if you're just going to let everyone else take your content onto their app? AT&T's incoming CEO, John Stanky, whom Kilar succeeded at Warner Media, recently told CNBC, 
Roku and Amazon have elected not to be distributors. I step back and think we must be doing something right if someone believes we're starting to be in conflict with their business. Apple, which does the same thing that Amazon and Roku does, but is apparently quite content to just be a distributor of other people's apps, does feature HBO Max on its platform. As Greenfield's noted, it's basically operating as a program directory for the service. Click on one of HBO's shows, and off you go to the separate HBO Max app. But that leaves Roku and Amazon on the outside, refusing to carry HBO Max under the terms AT&T demands, even as the older HBO Now app, which streams with just the HBO library of shows, remains available. Together, those two providers reach around 80 million U.S. homes, so they're a big part of the footprint of streaming video in America. As Variety's chief TV critic, Carolyn Framke, put it in an otherwise positive review, finding HBO Max has become, quote, a surprisingly labyrinthine situation. And as she says, and I certainly agree, I can't imagine it will help uptake of HBO Max in the long run. You can certainly get it, but it can be a pain in the rear if you go to your usual places and it's not there. It's a recipe for consumer confusion, especially compared to the expensive and annoying traditional pay TV bundle, which at least provided clarity and simplicity. You got a batch of channels from one provider who even hooked you up on add-ons like HBO, all for one price and one bill and one logon and everything else. HBO Max's standoff with Amazon and Roku likely means it'll be more difficult to have that kind of simplicity going forward. They won't be the last ones trying to protect their prerogatives in this new era. There are companies trying to solve these complications before they get worse. Recently, I talked with the head of one of startup focused on the issue, Packet Media, which was founded by Rafi Bagdasarian, a veteran of Disney, Universal Music, and Sony Pictures Television, all of which were places where he was trying to get all kinds of uh, new digital content onto new platforms for traditional companies. His new company promises one monthly bill, one login for all your favorite services, bundle discounts, unquote. They all benefit from a clearer, simpler, more straightforward approach. I talked with Rafi, and I've uh, got most of that conversation as the second part of today's podcast. Check it out. Uh, We're going to see a lot of things changing, I think, over the next few years as we shift pretty rapidly to a streaming video world. We're seeing people cut the cord at remarkable, historically high rates in the middle of the pandemic. They've got to save money. One good place to do it is to whack your $150 cable bill, get broadband, get Netflix, maybe you get HBO Max, piece in a couple of others, and go from there. For the hundreds of niche providers out there, something like what Packet Media is doing is going to be really beneficial. I think it'll also help a lot of consumers. As Bagdasarian points out, he suspects that even the big boys, after they get through their initial year or so of uh, easy, rapid customer acquisition, will settle into a sort of a status quo where they'll be challenged to manage churn, which is people that leave while they have to spend a lot of money to get other people to sign up, and to simplify some of the marketing and other benefits that could come with a separate standalone service that helps make sure that it's easy to connect to all the services you want at a reasonable price. So anyway, I think it's a fascinating time. This is an interesting issue. Stay tuned for my conversation with Rafi Bagdasarian of Packet Media. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I'm David Bloom. I'm here with Rafi Bagdasarian. He is the founder and CEO of Packet Media. That's it. Company creating a product designed to make the streaming video world less agony. And uh, I think that there's a lot of folks that I deal with that might be pretty excited about that. But let's let's start with uh, a little background about you. There are Bagdasarians in Hollywood, you've mentioned. None of them are related to you. None of them are. Alvin and the Chipmunks, for instance, but uh, that's not you. But what's your background? Um, my background is from back east. Uh, moved out to Los Angeles and started working on the creative side of the business. I'm just going to say, you know, back east, where we are, everything is back east. <laughs> Riverside is back east. East of the 405, way about 3,000 yeah. miles east of the 405, yes. Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, so, New originally. York. 
Yeah, and came out here by way of New York, uh, working in production in film and television. Uh, but it wasn't until about uh, 2004 when I started working in digital media and creative. Uh, I was a, a creative producer doing original content at the Walt Disney Company. At the time, if I'm, my memory serves me right, because they've changed the name so many times over the years, uh, it was the Walt Disney Internet Group, and we were actually doing mobile content production. So WDIG, as they used w -Dig, to call it. WDIG, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was during the Eisner era. Uh, and we were actually, my team, I oversaw a team of artists, designers, uh, and animators, about a dozen of them. And we actually were producing actual short subject feature, or short subject Disney movies using Disney classic characters for the J Japanese and the Korean market. So we were actually making maybe five minute long shorts that we were chopping up into 30 second bits to go out to mobile devices on NT Docomo. So we were actually in the content business streaming video uh, it was actually, I don't even know if it was streaming or if it was progressive download, but we were distributing video uh, to mobile devices before it was even a thing here in the United States. That does sound like probably progressive download. I don't think the yeah. connections were that that fast back then, certainly not in, and Docomo was mostly mobile, right? So, yeah, mostly I mean, mobile. And obviously yeah. Korea and Japan still are very much mobile driven. Yeah. Um, so that was where you got started. That's uh, where you got started, yeah. In this digital space, and that's a pretty interesting space. But from there to here is uh, 16 years. So mm -hmm. what have you been doing since then? Uh, well, I, I worked for a number of media companies, uh, primarily in the mobile space. Uh, I worked at Universal Music, uh, was one of the founding uh, staff members of their mobile division there. It was during the time of insane revenues for ringtones, right? So you'd sell a ringtone for $1.99 for a, a, a piece of music that you could buy for 99 cents on iTunes. Uh, and it was during the real dark period of the music industry when uh, CD sales, physical media sales were declining and they really still hadn't found out a long-term business model, which they have since found out. And I'd like to think that our division, at least within Universal Music, built a lot of the tools on which that business started to take off. So, um, but after that, I got back into film and television where I, I went back to Sony Pictures Television uh, and I was working on their, their digital networks group. I started there right after they acquired a company called Grouper. There was a period of time- That was a recall. video company, if I recall, Yeah, right? user-generated video. Yeah, that's right, user-generated, right, yeah. right, right. So that was, and it was kind of an interesting acquisition. Grouper was one of the big competitors, though, with mm -hmm. YouTube at the time, right? Yeah, in fact, when, when Sony acquired them, uh, there were two UGV sites, right. and one was YouTube, one was Grouper. Uh, Grouper was acquired by Sony. Uh, they rebranded it after about a year as a service called Crackle, and it was being run autonomously, essentially, out of uh, Sausalito, where they were based. Uh, and after about two years, maybe, after the initial acquisition, they brought it down to Culver City, uh, and that's where my team started to incorporate it into our digital networks group and convert it from being a user-generated video site to an ad-supported streaming video service using okay. you know premium media that came mainly from Sony Pictures film and television library. It was a lot. Yeah, it was a lot of library content. Mm -hmm. I remember, and I've talked since then with Adam Lewinson, who uh, is at Tubi now, mm -hmm. uh, doing the, the library thing these days with oh, yeah. uh, that ad-supported video, video uh, network. Mm -hmm. Crackle's gone in lots of different directions, but yeah. so you were there. So you've been you've been involved in getting video to people in lots of ways, other than over broadcast or cable networks, basically, yes. for yeah. a long time. Yeah, and my background is, is mostly in product development and operations, uh, with you know touching on engineering as well, uh, but primarily product development. So you, being in product development, you, you are basically an advocate for many stakeholders. Uh, you serve many masters, so to say, uh, from the executive stakeholders to, most importantly, the end users. And I think it's being in that, in that position, you really get a, a really great perspective on you know, what are the interests of the business, but what are the interests of the end users? And it's a real delicate balance trying to figure that out. And because especially in Hollywood, it's no secret that there are existing business models that are making you know, billions of dollars for these studios. Uh, and the last thing a, a distribution or sales executive wants to do is cannibalize their own revenue streams for some nascent streaming or you know, downloadable video service, right? So, you know, there that's were- That's been the essential conflict yeah. in Hollywood for the last really 15 years as they try to figure out how to do the old thing that makes them a lot of money mm -hmm. while being in the new thing enough to make more money, right? Well, a good example is, you know, the day after HBO Go launched, uh, the, the carrier-authenticated direct uh, or streaming video service for HBO, 
I remember I downloaded it, and the next day I was in a senior management meeting with some of my colleagues there, and I said, um, have any of you seen HBO Go? And no one had downloaded it and, and looked at it. And my next comment was, uh, Netflix better watch out because HBO Go is going to be coming after them. And there were audible laughs. You know, one of them said, uh, I think it was a marketing executive said, uh, Netflix is digital, HBO is cable. They're not competitors. And it just didn't compute to me. I'm like, but they're both on this device and they're both competing for the same eyeballs. And the reason, you know, I can't fault anyone for thinking that way, but within the company, the teams handling the digital deals are a completely different you know, part of the company. Than they're the in Sausalito. Well, yeah. I mean, they were at least, at least on a different floor at the time. Mentally but. speaking, they're in Sausalito yeah. and everybody else is down in Culver City. Yeah. It, yeah. More or less. I mean, it's one of the challenges because uh, the silos, and Sony's notorious for it, but so are a lot of other companies, the digital side didn't talk well with the traditional TV group mm -hmm. or the movie studios who definitely didn't talk to each other, right? Yeah. I mean, so... I mean, well, and within nine months, Reed Hastings was up there in front of investors during their annual call saying our number one competition is HBO. Uh, Not so, just HBO Now or HBO well, Go, but yeah, HBO. HBO. Yeah. Right. Uh, another example is, uh, I remember asking a distribution executive, uh, how long do you think it is before Showtime and HBO and these pay TV services go direct to consumer? And the response was never, never. They never will because there's so much money in the, in the output deals with the studios and the pay TV uh, providers. And I was thinking two to five years, and it happened within a year and a half with HBO Now. Yeah. So, so again, I don't think that, it's that I have any magical crystal ball. I think being so much in the headspace of the consumers sort of forces you to think of it from the consumer's perspective because ultimately you have to meet the needs of the consumer. Right. Um, there's the, the old distributor, adage. Distributors are used to thinking about how do I get stuff out, get this content out to the, the things, like the channels I know, yeah. and not how do I take care of my customer, which is some human being on the other yeah. end, right? I mean, it's a yeah. different mindset. And now they don't have a choice. Cord cutting has sent traditional cable in a tailspin. Mm -hmm. and, and these are smart people, yeah. mind you. you know, so they, it, it, it's, it's very difficult to disrupt your own business. Uh, and there's the old adage that says, if you don't disrupt yourself, someone else will do it for you. But it's really hard to disrupt your own business, especially on something that's a speculative or a nascent technology. It's hard to disrupt so, it and stay employed. Yeah, that, no, that's, you're absolutely right. It's the latter part of that phrase that's the, the hard thing. Right. There's a guarantee uh, that you could keep your employment, your position, that I think there'd be more, there'd be more innovation. But I, I was fortunate because the team that was in place at the time at Sony was, you know, Steve Moscow was the, the president, Andy uh, Kaplan was the president of the International Networks, Eric Berger was, eventually became the chief digital officer. But they were all very much um, for innovation. They, you know, they would regularly tell the senior staff there, we want to hear any and all ideas, no matter how crazy they are. They, Andy, Andy Kaplan came from Hollywood Stock Exchange many years earlier, so he has startup media experience as well. So they were very entrepreneurially spirited there. Right? It helps, I think, that they were not tied to any specific network. They were not tied to any specific distribution opportunity, right? Yes. Yeah. They, they were already making stuff for everybody. They had Crackle. Crackle was what Crackle was going to mm -hmm. be but they weren't locked in to, oh, I own CBS, therefore yeah. I have to take care of my broadcast guys, and I own Showtime, so I have to take care of my cable premium mm -hmm. channel. Although I actually think that Viacom CBS being untethered from a carrier is actually something that can work out to their benefit as they sort of present uh, Pluto TV, for example, right. as an MVP, a virtual MVPD. No, I think so. uh, what Bob Backish was doing is fascinating. Mm -hmm. They had a bad quarter uh, this last quarter, but I think that transformation by them has been really interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. And I think that it'll play out in the Pluto acquisition I thought was really smart. Now yeah. we're going to see Fox is going to buy probably Tubi, yeah. right? And uh, half a billion, I think. Half a billion. Yeah. It's the biggest one. I think they've got 25 million use, monthly users, so it's, yeah. it's, it's not nothing. I've talked with those people quite a bit. Well, and this goes to show you your... You know, where you're starting off doesn't necessarily, it doesn't show it's an indicator of where you're going to go. Because I remember when Tubi launched, or even, you know, Popcorn Flicks, and we were Crackle, we were Sony Pictures Television, and we were sort of looking at these services almost as curiosities. You know, how are they going to... Yeah, throw, throw something against the wall, right? Yeah, and, and I, don't want, I don't want to say there was a, a hubris there, but you have all these resources. Uh, sometimes a lack of resources is your best 
your asset because mm -hmm. it forces you to think really strategically, not just rest on your laurels. And you have to make a product that's going to resonate with users. Uh, and in the case of Packet, it, it has to not only resonate with users, but also with the service providers who are the other side of our customer base. We're servicing those as customers as well as our end users. So, so let's talk about what Packet is. So we, we've got some sense of the, the interesting trip you've taken through the transformation mm -hmm. of digital video over the last mm -hmm. 15, 16 years. And it's been a pretty good time for people like you creating the products and uh, maybe less so for people in the more traditional stuff as their business is slowly eaten away. Yeah. What is Packet and what is it designed to do? So Packet is really designed to help consumers make sense of an increasingly confusing media landscape, specifically around streaming media. Uh, and when I say streaming media, I guess even though Packet can be applied eventually to any kind of streaming media, whether it's you know, a podcast service provider, ad-supported, uh, uh, subscription video on demand, subscription, subscription audio, for the sake of this conversation, you know, when I say streaming provider, I'm really talking about SVOD services, so subscription video on demand services, as well as AVOD services as well. So the way we're solving this problem for consumers, we're offering a unified authentication, billing, and discovery platform for consumers to basically have a portable plan that they can take anywhere. Uh, and what I mean by that is the current state of affairs in streaming media is you have a lot of media companies that are buying up smaller media companies, essentially creating their own bundles of service providers that they're then going to go sell for a discount. But you're still within that media company sort of portfolio of products. Uh, and the way they're doing it is selling it a la carte or as a bundle in the case of, let's say, the Disney ABC right. or the Disney uh, Hulu ESPN Plus um, bundle at $12.99. But they're also doing it with either partnerships with major telcos, uh, mobile carriers, or their parent companies. So in the case of HBO Max, it'll be a value add or free service if you have a Time Warner cable company, cable uh, uh, subscription. In the case of Peacock, well, just to okay. clarify, AT and T, there's no Time Warner anymore. AT and T, yeah. So it's Warner Media, AT and T. Um, it gets a little confusing. They just rolled out a new service, AT and T TV. You can keep track of all this without your head exploding. Yes, yeah. uh, you're. You, you can do this because you're a pro, but I, and I should know lesser better. humans like me. Well, I should know better because right out of college, I was working, uh, one of the first jobs I had in tech was installing cable modems for Adelphia Communications in the Western New York region. So this was, you know, where they were PCI cards for their, their surfboard modems. But Adelphia was Well, that takes me back, man. <laughs> yeah, so this was, I mean, their, their, their test markets were Miami, Florida, and Buffalo, New York. So we were on the vanguard there. We were on the cutting edge of, the, of that technology. And to see people's eyes light up when their emails would download, you know, like that, 100 emails, uh, it, was, it was something. Thing so, of wonder. So, yes. but you do have also services like Peacock, which are designed to get you into a Comcast subscription. And, and with, keep you in their universe. And, yeah. And so they just bought Zumo, for instance, and they're going to have Peacock, and mm -hmm. all that's going to be a set of content you get free, built in, along with any pay services you have. Yeah. So they've got that, but you're staying within that Comcast universe. And they're just yeah. So they're basically becoming value add to keep you in some broader eco ecosystem. Yeah, Apple's and, got TV exactly, and, and Disney is is doing partnerships with the likes of Verizon, for example. So if you have a Verizon subscription, you may not even know it, but you have Disney Plus for free for a year, right? But the problem is, as I see it, is is that that's good for temporarily locking in a user into your ecosystem or your environment, and I think that consumers are getting frustrated with that. And I think there actually are some consumers that would rather just pay and, and not have to be tethered to some other type of service in order to get the services that they actually want. I mean, I guess that's the best way to think about it. These are semi-walled gardens. Mm -hmm. They're really trying to keep their ecosystems, these major media megalopolises, and keep you there in various ways and bounce you around, whether it's ad support or subscription or whatever. Yeah. And your expectation is there's going to be a set of folks that want to go beyond any one company. Because there's yeah. a lot of stuff out there, right? Well, okay, so there, there's two sides of, of who we're serving. There's, like I said, there's the streaming service providers and there's the consumers. I think for consumers, the value prop is, is pretty crystal clear and there are a lot of people trying to solve streaming media for the end users. You have services on one hand, like Real Good, 
which has over 10 million users. And this is after maybe a year, year and a half of operation, at least that I know of that they've been operating. Uh, you have between real good service like Just Watch and TV Time, you have almost 30 million users globally. And the question is, well, why are they going to these third-party services to manage what they're watching? It's because there is no solution to manage for them to say, okay, I want to watch this movie. Where do I go to find out where it's playing? That's fine if you have an Apple TV or if you're locked into Apple's ecosystem or if you're locked into Amazon's ecosystem. But that brings me to the problem for the streaming service providers. So you have, and when you think about it, you have these platforms that are at scale. Amazon, Roku, Apple TV are the, the most prevalent of those. Who's the biggest, I think, by quite a bit compared to the other ones, correct? Yeah, yeah. And I think part of the reason is because they have the lowest yeah. you know, price of Cheap, entry. Right? good functionality, mm -hmm. and it had everything. Yeah. And these service providers are taking up to 50% of, or these platforms are taking up to 50% of the service provider's revenue. And what are they doing with that? They're then competing on the same content market for content. The so, Roku channel, yeah. IMDb, is it IMDb channel? Is that what they're calling it? IMDb now? channel, yeah. It, it, it's, I, don't, I don't know it's how- It's the worst name for a channel ever, but, but you can't but Roku that. actually announced today that they're going to be getting, that they're considering getting deeper into original, original content. Program. Yeah, yeah, original program. They haven't been doing that, but the, yeah. today they said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go there. I, I'm not surprised. I would think that they almost have to at this point. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is doing it, but- yeah. And I think if you're a streaming service provider, especially as you see the, I don't want to call it an apocalypse, but you see all the moves that are going to be happening over the course of this, this year, you're going to see so many new services launching with a lot of money, a lot of marketing, and they're going to all have some kind of incentive to get you locked into their ecosystem. So if you think consumers are, are confused now, just you wait. It's going to get even worse. I think, our, I think our colleague, uh, Alan Wolk, calls it the Flixpocalypse. But that's a good one. It's a little hard to say, though. Flix it apocalypse. is a little hard to say, uh, but it's clever. I mean, so we have to give him credit for that. But it's, yeah. uh, it doesn't roll off the tongue in quite the. It, it doesn't. We'll, we'll work. Not on like Bagdasarian, <laughs> by gosh, that rolls off the tongue. Yeah. So um, well, but I think I think that if you're a service provider, what you're thinking is, okay, we've got all these partnerships lined up, incentives to get people locked in for a year, six months, whatever it may right. be. But there's one cohort that's keeping them up at night, and those are the people that are subscribing directly to the service and whipping out their credit cards, paying $6.99 for Disney Plus, let's say. And I guarantee you that in these companies, in these streaming service providers, it's that cohort of paying subscribers on a month-to-month -month basis that they're paying the most attention to, and I think what they're seeing is much higher churn than they would like. Absolutely, right? that's the churn and burn and crew, right? I mean, yeah. the, that churn and burn group are, I'm gonna check it out, and when I get through with The Mandalorian, I'm pulling the ripcord because yeah. I don't care about anything else. I don't care about the nature of documentaries or uh, the behind the scenes of uh, the, the, the Mouseketeers or whatever. Yeah. And then I'm on to the next thing. And oh, I just watched the morning show at Apple TV Plus, and I don't care about the, you know, it's like they do that and then they're on yeah. to the next thing. Right? Well, now you could launch your channel as a channel on Apple TV Plus, Amazon streaming partners on Roku, but now, they're not in your branded environment. So now right. you're sacrificing not only your revenue for it to be- Half your revenue. Turned, yeah, to be, a, and, and it's, it, you gotta make the point that that revenue is gonna be fueling their content budget, right? right. Like, how can you compete, even Disney, how do you compete with Amazon's content budget, right? Not only are you paying them for your, to run your, your services in AWS, you're now paying them and they're taking a piece of your revenue a as piece. you distribute on their, their right. in their environment. I think I saw that Amazon uh, makes something like two and a half billion dollars just off of what it scrapes from the people who subscribe to other companies' channels yeah. through their channels program, the Amazon uh, studio, the Prime mm -hmm. channel. So, so you get your HBO on the side through them instead of directly through HBO. They're they're taking a chunk that adds up to two and a half billion a year, which is a nice yeah. nice chunk of change. That's that's part of Apple's play too. No, no, it works, but Amazon and these platforms work out well for consumers because they just go to a single source. Right. They right. just go that's to one the place. Thing. They go one place. If you want to be an Apple, or you want to be an yeah. Amazon, you want to be on the Fire platform or the Apple TV, it's good. For yeah, you. and and, and where where the founding ethos of Packet is really when you take internet scale, uh, why not create the platform that is fully independent, has all the benefits, that isn't taking you know, the revenue from the streaming providers and then competing with them. It's almost like giving a platform as a service to the streaming providers to have 
the platform efficiency of an Apple or an Amazon, but it's, it's making it independent. It's not tied to any kind of incentives. Because just like you, know, you used to buy, be able to buy a phone, or you, get, you sign up for Verizon, you get a free phone, right? And then you sign up for Verizon, you got a phone for 50% off. Now you sign up for Verizon, you don't get a phone, you get content. So eventually these incentives are going to dry up. And I think what we're gonna see over the course of the next year is we're gonna see a great leveling off uh, on two fronts. One is going to be major service providers, and we haven't even started talking about the, the mid-tier and smaller service providers who would probably arguably benefit with this from this the most in the, in the near term. But the major service providers are going to launch strong and they're going to see you know, their you know, subscriber base go up tens of millions, uh, but eventually they're gonna plateau. And then that's, the question is, okay, where do we go from here? Right. And that's the thing that we already have seen with yeah. Disney Plus. So they came out of the shoot really fast, 28.6 yeah. million subscribers in their first three months, plus all the pre-sales mm -hmm. they did before day one, where they had 10 million they launched with. But clearly everybody's like, okay, now what do you have? Well, and they're gonna have to ask themselves, what is your content worth? Is your content just a value-add marketing cost? Right. Or does your content have premium? And I personally think, What's likely going to happen? I don't. I don't know if I'm not saying Apple will raise the price of Apple TV because they're so in, integrated into their their hardware business. But Apple is selling their Apple TV Plus subscription for $4.99 a month. HBO is selling HBO now at $15 a month. It's a huge, huge you know, delta, there. delta there that you gotta. You know, I I think that you're going to see the the certain services might find that they're overpriced and they're going to have to move down and. Uh, Apple might someday get sick of commoditizing their content and just giving it away, and they might raise it a dollar or two. So I think they're going to bundle it. I think that's where they're mm -hmm. going to. That's where you're going to see that. So the yeah. bundle sort of hides the actual cost, and the whole thing is you take that and Apple News and mm -hmm. probably a, the cloud and all that, and that's what they're going to offer for fifty bucks a month. Or yeah, like that, you know? and, and granted, we're not we're realistic about the reach that packet media could have in the near term and, and midterm uh, long term it's it's kind of anybody's game I think yeah. but we're not gonna be the single place where you go to subscribe to Netflix Apple TV Amazon everything you're still gonna Netflix is gonna be its own discrete uh, uh, subscription and bill yeah they're they're for, pulling out of everything they're, they're they're yeah you can't even resubscribe through Apple anymore because yeah. Apple was pulling 35% off or 30% off and they're like no you can't do that anymore yeah. you can get our app but then you have to come to us yeah I, like I almost kind of see what we're doing in, in sort of our our ultimate position is almost being the platform for non-Apple, non-Amazon, non-Roku media companies. For the there rest are a lot of us. Of them. Yeah, for the rest of us. And I think there's a tremendous amount of value there because if I could have, you know, the four or five a la carte subscriptions that I even even if we're not bundling, we're not even talking about bundling the content and discounting it. Not right? doing the VRV or Verve. Well, so there, there are three ways that you could get content on packet. And when I say content, you're buying the license and then you authenticate through the service provider's application and then they check to make sure that you have a valid license that's all paid up, and then they give you the content. So we're not touching content. We're not bringing feeds in. We're not you know, distributing video. We're purely a license management platform, basically. A license and billing and authentication management platform. It's but not sexy, but it's really important. It's here. very important. because it's, it's, only gonna up, get, it's only going to get worse, too. Well, and it also frees up the studios to focus on not the plumbing and infrastructure, but focus on content, branding, engagement. The stuff right? they used to let the cable company worry about. Yeah. You're kind of taking over that stuff in local parentis almost. Yeah, and we're doing it with with the service provider's interest at heart, genuinely. And I think that's where we're different from an Apple, Amazon, and even a Roku. And it sounds crazy to think that we're going head to head with. I, we're not going head to head with those companies. We're sort of flying under the radar because they have a they have a tremendous amount of value for their users for their ecosystems, right? But we're talking about. You, you reach a plateau with the number of users that you can get. Whether There's it's only so centers. many. That are, I mean, if you're an Android person, you're not going to go yeah. to Apple. Yeah, you, exactly. Instance. And if you're an Apple guy, you may not really want to go to Amazon or well, whatever. Well, and yeah. I'll tell you what, too. It will, we're going for the, the extra 5% of users yeah. beyond Yeah, what is that plateau, market, right? uh, that space that's sort of mm -hmm. left out there? I think scale is a really good thing to say. It's like, look, scale, we're talking tens of millions of people in the U.S. alone yeah. floating out there watching TV, 100 million households, but 250 million mobile phones and goodness knows what else, yeah. and they're all consuming stuff in various ways. 
How do you get a piece of that? Well, we're cross-platform. That's one way we do it. So we're not restricted to any one device. So we're, we'll be on OTT devices. We'll be on web. In fact, given Apple's sort of draconian restrictions on what you can actually buy in app, uh, you would have to sign up for a service on the web in order to then access the license with an, an iOS app. You can, it's just like Kindle. You can't say buy this book on an iOS Kindle app because they won't allow you to do that. You can't buy the Kindle version of it. You can go into Amazon, the, the application, buy the, the physical book, but you can't buy the digital product if it's competing with something on one of Apple services. But I can say, uh, just from my own personal experience, I am an Apple fanboy. I've got an iOS, you know, I got an Apple Watch, I've got an Apple phone. You've got a Steve iPads. Jobs bobblehead. Uh, you know, I admire the it's guy. It's called a Yeah. <laughs> I don't have that, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm firmly planted within Apple's ecosystem. However, wherever I get a chance, I decouple from that ecosystem, not for any reason other than other people do it better. Uh, I personally think Outlook 365 is a better email, uh, you know, especially for the corporate work uh, for Packet, it's a better email uh, calendar uh, platform than, than iCloud. Uh, I personally think that Dropbox is a better cloud storage than iCloud as well. I even use Evernote over Notes. Uh, I might change that. I don't, I don't know what's going on with Evernote, but I just prefer... We haven't known what Evernote's <laughs> been doing for years, but I'm an Evernote guy. Look how many people have too. Spotify over Apple Music. Right. I actually have Apple Music. I actually prefer... This is one where yeah. I actually prefer Apple. Yeah. But, but there is a huge market and opportunity for people to go head-to-head -head with the services that a platform provides or that an ecosystem provides. And so what we're looking for, or what we're looking forward to at Packet is the future, when streaming media reaches a steady state. Right now, it's, it's, it's so chaotic that I, I don't know where we fit in in the, in the near term with the major media partners. I think by the time we launch, which we're, we're planning on launching early 2021, I think by the time we launch, and maybe even sooner, um, we, we may see the larger server, service providers finding a need for our services because they want to get ahead of the, you know, the, the cohort that's actually paying and see if maybe if we work with Packet, maybe we can see less churn in that cohort that's actually paying for subscriptions, right? So, so explain to me more how using something like Packet mm -hmm with this turn and burn crew, which are the ones that are most easily lost, yeah. most mobile, not in phones, but just nomadic. We'll yeah. just say economically nomadic among yeah. the services. How is it that you can keep them on the ranch? So I think there are three ways that we do it in terms of the three primary products that we're selling, right? Uh, th these aren't the three main sort of lines of businesses where we generate revenue. They're, I'm talking about the actual end user product. So one is a la carte aggregation. And I think there's a tremendous amount of value just in that. If you're paying retail for three or four, even if it's just two, even if it's one service, right? Even if you're paying retail for those services, having one bill and they all get aggregated into one bill, knowing what you're paying, having that transparency, and then having the ease of authenticating with a single user ID and password through all those services, is a tremendous amount of value, right? So I think that alone would be worth having something like a packet you know, to manage your subscriptions. The second one is that we can also work with service providers that have really great bundles. So a perfect case in point I mentioned earlier, um, the Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, Hulu bundle. Uh, they're selling that for $12.99. It's a savings of about 28% as if you, over if you subscribed a la carte to each of these services. And that's great for families, right? Uh, because it's got something for the parents, something for the kids, and sports is something that both can enjoy together. My family, we're not that into sports, and I would be more prone to get something, and I don't watch much TV because I'm too busy <laughs> building a solution for TV, but I would buy a bundle that was for my kids. So what if you want to get Disney Plus bundled with like Boomerang and a Nickelodeon subscription service, right? So there you'd be working with three different media companies, mm -hmm. but I think that a Boomerang and a Nickelodeon would be happy to be under the protective umbrella of a Disney Plus. And I think Disney Plus wouldn't be averse to having other similarly situated companies or media partners sort of bolstering their offering. So you would work out a deal with the individual companies to say who gets what cut of what, and once you have that in place, they're all sort of working together to reduce churn. Because I think combined, you have a far more value for a family that's looking to have content for their kids by discounting things as a bundle 
and keeping them as subscribers for a long period of time. There's a critical mass there, you're yeah. saying, basically, that gets more satellites around it in terms of customers uh, revolving around that larger yeah. clump of stuff. You know, you know what it's like, it's, and I think this is gonna be the natural state. It's inevitable. Uh, it's, the it's rebundling. Kind of rebundling, but it's also kind of like Travelocity, right? You're, if, if you're an airline and you've got 30 seats left on your plane, if you could sell them for five bucks a head, I don't know what the threshold is, it might be more than that, but if you could sell them for a hundred bucks, you're better off having a full plane and getting that extra revenue than not having it at yeah, all. Yeah, anything's better than right? nothing. So yeah. you're better off maybe getting the equivalent of 60% of, of your subscription revenue for a full lifetime as opposed to have someone like pay the full price, drop out for four or five months, come back. It's not just gonna net more revenue, but it's also you're gonna have more users to market to when you have new content. So let's take a smaller provider, for example. If, if you're a smaller niche provider, you've got maybe 500,000 subscribers, and every user over that 500,000 is gonna cost you three, four X what your no normal customer acquisition costs are. If you can get maybe half of what you would normally get because you're bundled in with other like-minded content, and now let's say you have 200,000 more customers, now when you create new content, you're gonna be marketing to 700,000 right. potential viewers, right? right? Uh, as opposed to 500,000. So it actually, it helps your, your content marketing ROI. Why would it necessarily be 3X, 4X more for that next incremental customer? Is it I, just that, I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm asking is, is like, because yeah. it's conceivable that would be the case, yeah. right? Because simply you've got who you've got yeah. at the costs you've been spending in the places you've been marketing yeah. to the audiences you've been reaching finding out who those next folks are that might be interested for a little while might be harder to find, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. it might cost more on a different platform or whatever. I mean, I guess that's that's the thing. It's gonna cost more probably, or you would have already gotten them. Yeah, and, and when I said three or four X more, that was just anecdotal. Just a general it was, it was to make right. a point. But it, I didn't know if it was a scientific is, term. Yeah, yeah, there is a threshold though where, where they're, where the customer acquisition cost beyond a certain number of users starts to go up. There's kind of an equilibrium there, yeah. and then it gets harder and harder to go up that hill at that point. Yeah, okay. so, so we're really about you know, reducing churn, reducing those customer acquisition costs, improving your marketing ROI. Uh, and, it's also, and the reason why is because it's helping customers, it's reducing the chaos, it's reducing the friction. Now we have their payment information, so if they want to subscribe to a new bundle that comes up, or if they want to subscribe a la carte to something, they don't have to create a new login, they don't have to whip out their credit card to another, yet another service, they just log in, and, or they're already logged in, and they just say add to my bundle or my plan. Uh, it gets added to their plan. They see what their new plan amount's going to be. It charges them for that the rest of the month, prorated, uh, and then they're they're locked in. And I think there is a certain, um, and I saw this firsthand when we were working uh, with a lot of the mobile carriers in the early days of, sure. of, of media, like Verizon Movies, for example. Um, at Sony, we were selling, we were creating movie channels on Sprint, on Verizon, where we would have maybe four to six movies a month cycling through a channel, which users were paying six to nine ninety nine a month for, right? This was before Netflix, before mobile streaming. And people, once they accepted their monthly plan amount, they would not churn out of those services, mm. whether or not they use them. I don't necessarily agree with that type of, I wouldn't say it's deceptive because no one forced them to subscribe, but there is a psychology around subscriptions that when you're paying you know, $150 for your family plan on T-Mobile, let's say, and you add an extra feature that's $5 or $10. Once you get used to that monthly bill, you're less likely to churn out of all the services it that It kind of gets have. lost yeah. in the, I'm getting all of this, I'm not gonna worry about that incremental five yeah. bucks. So if you have a budget of, you know, $39.99 for your streaming media, and you've a total cord cutter, right? Uh, you can do that and manage it within Packet. And, and once you have your plan amount, you see that same amount being charged to your credit card, you're less likely to do something about it as opposed to having you know, 12 disparate charges and then wondering what was that service that I signed up for and right. how do I Saying, cancel oh, it? I'm out of here. And, yeah. Well, and there's a perfect example of where looking out for user interests, I think, actually reduces churn. I think a lot of executives that might be worried for their jobs, as we indicated earlier, might not, it might be uh, going against their intuition to say, hey, we need to make it really easy for people to unsubscribe to our service. They're gonna obfuscate that process and make it as hard to find as possible. By making it really easy, I think you empower users to feel like they're in control. 
yeah. thereby they're going to want to, A, you build a better brand affinity with that user, but I think they're less likely to churn out if they know that they're in control, right? I think giving There's them a the trust power. issue there, I think, mm -hmm. that you have to, people got mad at cable companies because they made it so hard to get the heck oh, yeah. out. I mean, back in the day, AOL ticked yeah. people off because when you tried to quit, they would put you through this ringer to just yeah. unsubscribe. And it will, it will keep you for a short period of time. So it's again, short-term gains, but it, it gains, but it's at the, the, the long-term. Well, it's games and gains. Games, yeah. But I, I mean, I, I didn't cancel my, my, it was Time Warner at the time, it's Spectrum now, just cable. But when I tried to cut the cord, it was about six months before I actually finally did it because I didn't want to have to deal with the process. So it was actually poor service as a customer retention right. tool. Right. Oddly enough. But my lifelong view of that brand is not very favorable. Yeah, it's right? permanently tainted. Yeah. You know, and that's the that was what happened with both AOL and pretty much all the cable companies for yeah. years to come. Never mind the fried computers in uh, Adelphi when you were yeah. a, a teen uh, uh, installer. You've got these services, it makes sense to me. So are you up and out, or what's your status at this point with the products? Our status right now is we are, the platform, uh, the authentication component is built and production ready. The billing portion will be built and production ready within the next week or two. And the discovery side is the one where we wanna really nail and get right. And so the we, discovery side is gonna be, here's the universe of channels. Yeah. And you can throw these onto there and on there, and we'll have bundles and deals eventually. Maybe not yeah. now, but eventually. So we'll give preference in terms of uh, surfacing content for those service providers that are signed up with us. Um, and the way it works is we, we're not going to have like a self-serve portal for the publishers. It's something that we would have to make sure that we have the right deal terms in place, something that works for them but also works for us. It's uh, going to be highly templatized, but we do have a team in place right now that is very uh, experienced on the studio and media side of these type of distribution deals. Uh, we also have a, a, a really talented product and engineering team that's in place building this. And where we are right now is we're in the final stages of preparing to do a series seed raise. Uh, we've identified what our key performance metrics are that we look to get from that capital injection and really just prove out the business model and, and build out the, re the rest of the platform. Okay. It's, it's not so much building out the rest of the platform, it's making it production ready. And anyone who's launched a production application knows that the, you know, the business logic is the hard part, but you do have to get it production ready and make sure it's secure and scalable. And, and you've got a there. particular challenge because yeah. it's both direct to consumer and uh, a B2B component of it. So mm -hmm. you really got to work sure, make sure that that user interface is pain free and yeah. And, and to build the apps, to build the, the iOS, the Android apps, the OTT apps, but it's all built on the uh, the APIs that we're, we're pretty far along in, in, in building right now. Okay. So, so you're going to go for a seed round. Seed round, yeah. All right. Um, and we do have uh, some really, I think, really compelling key financial indicators that we want to hit. And uh, it's not a very high margin business because we are a platform, right? And any platform is at best maybe in a seven to nine percent gross profit margin. But we, the, the actual selling of, of the subscriptions is not really our core uh, long-term business value. I think it's really gonna come down to the data, the intel, the analytics that we're gonna be able to glean from this explicit usage of the services that are on packet as opposed to the, the implicit usage on a service like a real good or Sure, whatnot. sure. What would be the, I mean, I can, Think of a lot of opportunities for some of that information, but but what is what are the, what would you what would you do with that data? Where does that go, and how does that build the business in the long term? Well, with with any data set, um, especially when you're when you're getting a lot of micro data transactions, like what you watched and what you liked, and you know what you subscribe to and not. The bigger the pool of data, uh, the the more you can do with the analytics, and the more insights you can provide to third parties, but also to your own partners. Uh, we do uh, plan, this is something that we're still developing, but we do plan to offer a very robust, anonymized data set to the people that, the services that actually uh, are partners with us on the platform. They should at least be able to see how they're performing against like-minded channels and services. Uh, and they will certainly get data on their own 
usage, right? Their own users. Uh, and I think it's actually important to also make this one distinct, uh, to, to distinguish that even though we're handling the authentication, it doesn't preclude a service provider from creating a user from that authenticated user on our platform. So what I mean by that is we're using open standards, open protocols, OAuth 2, um, just like Facebook uses for Facebook Connect. And if you have someone create a, you know, log into your website or your application using Facebook Connect, you can still create a discrete user on your own platform. Mm -hmm. So we're not siphoning users off of existing platforms. We're actually allowing them to create users. It's just that they're actually authenticating through our layer. Okay. So it's it's still their user. They're just authenticating through our layer. So I think it's a, an important thing to sort of clarify that we're not you're you know, not taking it away. From we're bringing you users, right? right? We're not taking them from you. All right. Well, great. Well, Rafi, this has been wonderful. Um, Thank you. Yeah. David Bloom with uh, Rafi Bagdasarian, uh, founder and CEO of Packet Media and the uh, company trying to simplify some of the craziness of the streaming wars and uh, I guess create a few truces between some of the combatants, I Hopefully. suppose. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you, David. And that's my conversation with Rafi Bagdasarian, the uh, CEO and founder of Packet Media, which you can find at packet.tv. And it's packet, P-A-K-E-T.tv. Interesting company. They're still not quite yet out, uh, but should be out early next year at the latest as they're building all their products. There are other companies, as he mentioned, that are doing some interesting things. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, rate, review, subscribe, and share it widely. I deeply appreciate all that. It helps uh, tell the magic algorithm machine that we're doing something that's relatively useful here, and I'd like to think that's the case. If you really like it, you can go to the site that syndicates and hosts my podcast, Anchor.fm, become a, a contributor, a supporter of the show. That would be great. Throw in a few bucks and help me keep my machine rolling along. You can also go there to leave any audio comments. I'm sort of curious what you think of HBO Max, what you think of, more generally, the challenges of managing a whole portfolio of streaming services as we shift away from that one-size-fits-all cable bundle to this new streaming universe. Are you seeing some challenges or annoyances there? Let me know what you think. More generally, I hope you're well. If you want to reach out to me in more traditional ways, you can find me on LinkedIn at David L. Bloom and on Twitter at David Bloom. Leave a note there and we'll connect and I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane, be careful, and I hope to keep you on as one of my listeners for a long time to come. This is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. And that you've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone.